Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. Hey, Andrew, thanks for joining me. It's, as I mentioned to you before, it's amazing to talk to you, having a relationship with you on, or, or, or seeing sort of the cool stuff you're doing on Gen Z Mafia, and then reading some of your tweets and stuff like that. And the one of the things that fascinates me the most about you is that you're actually not that far away from me in age. So I'm 19 years old. I think we're like a year or two apart. 22, yeah. A couple of years you're, you're 20 years. Yeah. So ish, you're working at a startup already and just balling out and doing all these cool things. And, and that's so interesting to me just because that's a, a, a different uh, life path. And, and so one of the things that I like talking to people about on this podcast is what it means to disengage from this linear idea of college and then nine to five job and then retirement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm happy to talk about this stuff. Yeah. I can say a little bit about myself. I, I have a pretty typical story until the last few years, actually. So I was born and raised in Mesa, Arizona, which is just some town. It's not a town. It's a city. It's a pretty big city. It's a suburb of Phoenix, but nowhere special. I went to public school my whole life and was always in like the gifted kids programs. I was like the archetypal ADHD kid in class who couldn't shut up. Teachers would hit me on the back of the head with books and stuff. And oh gosh. It's so I think a lot of people have this experience, especially a lot of people in tech have this experience, but definitely didn't know how to keep my mouth shut. Definitely couldn't stop myself from blurting out in class. Almost got put on meds, except my parents don't believe in meds. So that's great. But I feel like, sorry, this is totally a tangent now, but I feel like some more modern parents would have taken my teacher's recommendation and put me on Adderall in like first or second grade. I'm pretty glad that I wasn't put on Adderall in first or second grade because I managed to... I don't deal with my ADHD with meds because I developed like better coping strategies, especially in college and in my early career. But anyway, sorry, that, that's a tangent. But okay, the point being, this is a pretty this is a pretty typical student archetype. I went to high school in downtown Mesa, where it was a primarily free and reduced lunch program, so pretty impoverished area of the city. I was in the minority as a white student. And at that point, really formed my core identity as somebody who wants to help others and who wants to use my gifts. I'm particularly good at engineering. I'm good at mathematics. I'm good at science and technology. Or at least that's what I thought when I was in high school. And it's primarily my hypothesis still to this day, but we'll see. I formed this hypothesis that, or this identity is I'm somebody who can use my talents as a builder in order to make systems that bring people out of these like particularly heartbreaking circumstances. I ended up doing being a leader on my high school robotics team where we did a lot of outreach at the school because of course there weren't that many, there weren't that many like upper middle class, white, bright kids to be on the robotics team, which I think is the story of, of a lot of robotics teams. But in our case, it was actually like a really wonderful and beautiful thing where the robotics team was primarily women, primarily students who were on free and reduced lunch programs. 
and I consider myself very thankful for having had that experience because I think for a lot of people, they can grow up in bubbles that make them like, I don't know. Now we're just talking about elitism, right? It's like you can get into these elite circles and elite bubbles where you start to look down on people for their life circumstances. And one of the things I obviously learned at a very young age was that like people's life circumstances are not very much a determinant of their like capability to be engineers or whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I graduated from high school and got, I was awarded this Arizona scholarship called the Flynn scholarship, which essentially paid for me to go to college, but I had to stay in state. The scholarship's sort of commitment is that they are committed to a better Arizona. So I went to school at ASU and had college paid for and had the stipend on top that paid for like my housing and all that stuff. And after a couple of years, I decided now's the time to start getting some jobs. And I got an embedded systems internship. And then after the embedded systems internship, my friend or my acquaintance, I guess, Ryan Johnson, who's the CEO of Cul-de-Sac, posted that he's starting a new thing and he is interested in hiring some interns. So I reached out and uh, I don't know, Ryan works in a very curious and quick paced way. So somehow within a week and a half, I was flying out to San Francisco and interning at Cul-de-Sac where I started work as a professional software engineer. And then I guess the rest is history. I dropped out of college shortly after, after I was given a full-time offer. And that's what I've been doing for the last two and a half years, building the future car-free cities of America and all the software that is needed to support them. Yeah. You mentioned this sort of software engineer archetype. When I asked you the question, I wasn't actually expecting you to go that far back, but it was just funny for me because I think it definitely is a very similar story where people are particularly effusive at that that age. And one of the things I'm, I'm most interested in, as I, I told you, is this idea of identity, of course. And so you talked about how you form this identity. This is what I do. I, I use technology to help people and maybe that's not quite as nuanced as you put it, but I use technology to help people. And so when would you say you developed that idea? And and how much does it factor into the the work you do and the decisions you make around how to structure your career and things like that? Right. Yeah. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when I fully decided that I use technology to help people, as you put it. I remember that I wanted to be a lawyer when I first went to high school because I was really good at arguing, which seems to be like, it's like simultaneously the most naive and maybe like the funniest reason to choose a career of all time is I'm good at arguing. Therefore I should argue for a living. Mm -hmm. But I, I think somewhere around my sophomore year in high school, I started getting really into engineering because of robotics and there was something about that ethos of we're all coming together and we're all building something together. We're a team and our goal is not just to win, but our goal is to grow and to not just to grow like as a team, increase our membership, but like to grow individually. And there was something about that that was just so positive sum to me. And since then, I've really been obsessed with anything that allows you to grow the pie, so to speak. It's like yeah. I myself have some amount of 
creativity or even wealth or whatever, I have some amount of like value capable. But like when I get together with somebody else and we start to collaborate, it's not just two people's worth of value. We don't just add that up. There's like some multiplicative effect where like the relationship between us ends up producing even more than either of us could produce on our own. And I think that sort of formative experience with building a robotics team led me to believe that like building things together with other people is probably the best way to change the world. Wow. Okay. Because you, and, and even in your, I think it's your Twitter bio, right? It says, it mentions this phrase that you just mentioned, positive sum. And so w- when I think of positive sum, I think of markets. The way that you enrich yourself is by creating value for other people. And it's this particularly weird thing in technology. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's people seem to take a particular satisfaction of understanding a concept and then their peers not understanding a concept. There's this weird sort of arrogance in CS. And maybe I know you were also in computer engineering. I, I don't know if you want to comment on that idea of just being in college and learning does not seem positive some at times, but I, I love this idea of th- the idea of positive sum actually involves other people. Of course, this pretty trite phrase being more than the sum of their parts, but it's, it's absolutely true. It's there's yeah. Like when you build a real relationship with somebody, you have built something. And so it's, there's you and there's them and there's your relationship and the relationship is extra. And of course it takes some amount of effort to maintain that relationship too. And it's very nuanced, but yeah, I, I don't know exactly what feels off about education, the way you were mentioning it, but I, I feel like I've noticed the same thing. I have one of this, I have this article that I wrote on my blog actually about, it's like on winners and losers and it's about the education system and how it's a zero sum game. Essentially there's like a limited number of spots at the top and we're all competing to be considered the best at a particular track. So you could think of it as everybody's put on a track and we're running like a marathon or something. And whoever finishes the marathon first is the winner. But in reality, like all it's testing is your ability to run that specific path that was set out in front of you. When if we had gone off the beaten path, then maybe we could all be winners right? in the end. And I think that's, that can be like maybe the most frustrating part of education is that like you, it puts you into this mindset where if I know something that you don't know, I have an advantage over you and I want to maintain that advantage. Whereas instead what we could do is I could say, I have a combination of skills that even though I could teach you everything I know enables me to be like extra specialized or something. And I think in the real world, you see that is much more common than in academia where there isn't as much nuance to the skill sets that we acquire. Yeah. And if you're the person that's then going on, obviously there's two points there, right? If you have a certain skill set and then you assume that someone else is an expert at something else, then again, it gets back to this idea of creating a relationship that's more than just the two people involved. But also if you're the person who's sharing your knowledge, then people might have the opposite reaction and just go, okay, here's someone that knows what they're doing. And that might elevate you even further. And yeah, I'm wondering, have you so I started thinking about positive sum thinking, you know, when I started looking at some of your stuff, but also reading some stuff Eric Torenberg's written. Yeah, he likes to talk about this a lot. 
it's one of the things I appreciate about what he puts out in the world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this current moment is particularly dystopian. It's, it, it feels there's this sour view on tech and I think it's honestly, I'm, this is not what we said we were talking about before. I'm just wondering if you have any ideas about this, because I think traditional media is dying and it will die very soon because the New York Times is basically just becoming Netflix. And I think we've lost sight of this idea that innovation, as you said, grows the pie and enables people to live their lives in the way that they want to. Yeah, I think these sorts of topics are tricky because what, I guess the way I think of a lot of these sort of tech culture hot button issues the way I think about it is like, these are a distraction actually. Like if the media is going to die, it's going to die. And talking about whether it's going to die doesn't actually help us build better shit. It doesn't help us bring people out of poverty. It doesn't help us like, it doesn't even help us like build cool toys. If that's your goal with technological innovation as well. Like all it does is add this like negativity to the world for the purpose of saying, Oh, I was right. Like I'm a good predictor of the future. And so the, the way I see it is media has a right to exist. It doesn't have a right to exist. It's like media is fighting to exist the way that we're all fighting to exist. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they succeed is like something that I don't have very much skin in that game. It doesn't really bother me. All that matters to me is are, are, like, are we collectively moving in the right direction? And I think you touched on something else there, which is we live in a dystopian time and people are not very trusting of tech. And I wonder a little bit, like, may, like, maybe we're poor stewards of our own culture if people don't trust us. And I get it. It can be really frustrating to, to be working hard to change the world for the better and for people to spit at you and say, like, you're making our lives worse. And I think that there's also some amount of validity in saying, like, the media is controlling the narrative and, like, they're putting out a narrative that is making us look worse than we actually are. On the other hand, my understanding of tech is that a lot of people are in this for the money and that like the drivers of innovation in this industry are venture capitalists who are fundamentally looking for returns on their investments, who like force acquires in situations where like founders want to continue building. And I'm not trying to say like venture capitalists are evil or I'm sure plenty of them are also trying to change the world. And they think that the best way they can change the world is by investing in hyper-growth companies. I guess my point is that maybe we should do some introspection and say, which parts of this industry are like, are the parts that are worthy of distrust? And how can we do better to remedy that relationship with the public? Yeah, there's a lot of particularly high-focused attention on, as you said, this topic right now. And it's, it's probably better to focus on building like you said as opposed to talking about because it it is it's good that you pointed out it's outside most people's locus of control so you i'm interested in something else that you said earlier so you go to cul-de-sac and it sounds like you were expecting it to be a summer internship right yeah at first it was like it was summer and i was enrolled for class in the fall and i took an internship at one tech company as an embedded systems intern and then i finished that internship and they offered me a job, but, but they had moved to Denver and I didn't want to re- work remotely okay. um, that early in my career. And then, 
so I applied to cul-de-sac and cul-de-sac offered me an internship. And I sort of thought at the end of the summer, I'll go back to school. But it was apparent to me quite quickly after I joined that they wanted me to stay full time. Sorry, continue the question. But this is just, it's just funny to me. I'm interested in how the internet can enable divergent, divergent in a great way, but can enable sort of new sort of life paths. And as you talked about it before, we're, we're breaking out of this marathon, right? You step off the track and you create a different path for yourself. Right. And it's just, it's so funny that you, maybe funny is not the right word, but you do one internship, right? And it's just this fortuitous sort of serendipitous thing where you have a friend, you get another one, and then you're like, all right, I guess I'm not going to go to school anymore. And maybe that's not the whole story, but you've developed a relationship with the, the person who starts cul-de-sac. Yeah, that's, that's, it's a pretty generous way to put our relationship. I think we'd met like twice, but he made an impression on me. I don't think I made an impression on him particularly, but essentially we are, he's an alumni of the scholarship program that I was talking about. It's called the Flynn Scholarship. And so we'd met at like a Flynn Scholars event and I'd gotten to chatting with him. And I think to him, I, and this was a year before. So this was in my freshman year at college. Mm-hmm. I think to him, I was probably just another freshman and we were having an interesting conversation. But to me, he came across as like remarkably competent and he had particularly good career advice. Um, yeah. And career, career advice is surprisingly hard to come by in college. This is one of the things that actually blew my mind as a college student was that like, no matter how many people you asked, like not only would you get different advice from each person, but none of the advice seemed like concrete or actionable. It was just like, it generally very ambiguous and generally also not very impassioned. But Ryan gave like very concrete, actionable advice and he seemed very sure of that advice. So I remember thinking, this guy's really interesting. If I get a chance to work with him someday, I should, I should do that. And then it just so happened that Maybe that wish like manifested. I don't know. I'm not yeah. spiritual like that, but right, that's yeah. what my parents would say. You asked the universe and it, and it happened. And I, I, I think it probably gets back to what you were saying earlier is that if you listen to what the majority of people say, there's this other point you made about most career advice being pretty ambiguous. But if you listen to what the majority of people say, then you, you still end up on the same path other people are going on, which right. doesn't enable you to play this positive sum game. Or, or maybe it does, but just not in the way that, that you probably want to. Right, um, or much later than you wanted to. Exactly. I think traditional advice is like, wait, be patient, wait your turn. It'll work out. Like that, that seems to be a pretty typical motif in advice. And I think that's just bad advice for mm-hmm. most people. Yeah. One of the people I talked to was, it was Wade Fletcher. And, and so he's starting this thing called Undercover VC, which is going to try to get connect students at schools that don't typically see themselves as VCs with VC funding. But the the reason that whole project came about is because he did one full stack internship and he was just having a conversation with his boss at the end. And the guy asked, what are you interested in? And he said, I might get into, so he's like a finance NCS major. So he was like, oh, I might do investment banking for a little while or try to you know, do something else. And then I'll eventually get into VC, which is what I really want to do. And his manager says, no, get into VC right now. Right, exactly. And yeah, he just started, it was so bizarre to me. He just started a scout network for VC programs as a sophomore in college. And, and I just love that attitude of screw it. I'll, I'll do it right now. I think people, people underestimate how much effort it takes to do things, I guess, like in general, or they like underestimate I, that's not quite the right way to put it. I think they underestimate 
how much permission they need to do things. It's like nobody's out here checking your permissions at the door. It's like either you're doing it or you're not doing it. And I think what a lot of people in college think is like, oh, I only have permission to like lead college clubs or to organize parties or to organize reading groups or something like that. But it's like, first of all, organizing parties is that's a job. You're not getting paid for it in college, but like a lot of people do get paid for it and it's not easy. And like, you're just doing it. And that's the same, that's the same way that people build companies. Like it's not easy to lead a successful robotics team in college at all. It's very difficult. And when you're, if you are actually successful, if you're one of those teams that's like consistently shipping and like building shit month after month or year after year, that's not easy. And people get paid to do that. And I think that people in their little box of like college clubs or whatever, they feel a lot of agency. But then when they think about the broader market, they don't feel that same agency, but it's really just the same thing. Yeah. I, th- I think it's no accident that Sudarshan was a party promoter at Clemson and he made a lot of money doing it. And yeah, yeah, another story from that is I'll just keep giving you stories from other conversations I've had. But I, I talked to someone who studied the creator economy for a while and he describes it as the post-permission world, which I thought was a phrase that you would probably appreciate. Right. Like um, and he told me, he was like, I was 19 and, and he noticed this whole, he wanted to create a decentralized platform for musicians like 10 years ago. He wanted to let musicians take control of their art and because distribution could even 10 years ago scale infinitely. You could put it on SoundCloud, you could put it anywhere. And, and so he was just writing about these trends he saw when he was my age. He was 19 years old. And one morning he's shirtless, like playing Xbox, like eating like an old slice of pizza. And the head of Universal Europe calls him. And he almost drops the phone. And it just shows how much credibility he built just by talking about what he was seeing. And it made him, and then he literally created a decentralized platform for artists to sell their music in Europe. And he was 19. It definitely, yeah. I think post-permission world is a great way to put it. I think that's right. Once you lose that sort of mentality that you need your parents' permission or you need your university's permission or you need your boss's permission or whatever, you start to like really feel like an agency that allows you to, you know, just build things. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that, not to get too personal, but I think one of the things that shifted for me having conversations like this and looking at what's going on out there is it makes me feel more empowered to do things, right? As you talked about, it gives me a deeper sense of agency. And I think when people have a deeper sense of agency, that's when they go out and build things. And it sounds like you felt that too, because it's for a traditional student, I, I want to be careful with the language I use, but I, I think for most people who are getting any sort of summer internship and then transition almost immediately to a job and leave school, I think you need to have an enormous amount of confidence in yourself, right? Yeah, I think that's, I think confidence is true, but I also want to point out that I don't think I'm special. I think that I recognize that I'm smart, but like plenty of people are as smart as I am. And I think that having a level of confidence that you can succeed when you're given an opportunity to succeed is the baseline. Mm-hmm. You got to have that. I was, it's not like this was a crazy risk that I had taken. I was given an, a job offer. The job offer was for a good salary in a field that 
where there's a lot of growth opportunity and something that I love doing. I love coding. And so when you put all those things together and life comes to you and it says, here's an opportunity to do something you love, to make a living while doing it, and to have a lot of potential career opportunity coming out of that. I really think like you don't have to be a particularly risky person in order to take that. You just have to be confident enough to like, just to know that you're capable because school is actually riskier in my opinion. Like if I had stuck it out another two years at university and then hoped to get a job as good as the one I can get now after two years of industry experience, that isn't guaranteed to pay off either. And I think it's just as risky. It's just that you have to be confident enough not to take the default action, which is to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it's important to point that out. What we're, I, I, I obviously think you're a very intelligent person and it's amazing to talk to you, but I, I think what we're talking about is choices, right? We're talking about taking actionable choices and it, it all goes back to positive career advice. I think this is, as you mentioned, taking a bet on yourself over that small period of time was actually the less risky thing to do as opposed to staying in school. You would have, I think, less leverage at that point of time, right? Because 22, right. People graduate college at 22. Yeah. Like my friends right now, well, so admittedly, like a weird thing happened, which is that the entire country broke out into a pandemic and that's not expected. But like my friends graduated in May. I mean, they graduated into the COVID pandemic and they were having a hard time finding jobs. And they were having a hard time finding jobs even before COVID broke out. So I guess to those listening to the podcast that are in college, I would strongly consider the idea that like college is not a guarantee. And so if you do have a guarantee, like I had, then that's great. Believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just told you no one listens to the podcast. I'll cut that moment out and send it to people so that they can have that advice. People will listen to the podcast in the future, Rudy. You have to believe in yourself. I know. No. Yeah. I I literally start every one of these. I'm like, yeah, no one listens to this, but I'm going to talk to you and we'll put it on the internet. But anyway, (laughs) you go to cul-de-sac and cul-de-sac is so interesting just because it's such a radical, it, it challenges us to think about a new way of, of living our lives. And what excited you the most about that opportunity? And yeah. 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 What excited me about cul-de-sac was the, it was wildly ambitious. Like it, it was mind blowingly ambitious. Actually. I looked at this project. I'm like, wait, you guys want to build a city? <laughs> like <laughs> that's insane. And I talked to them about it and I said like, how are you going to do it? And They were remarkably effective at not just explaining the vision, but also at like showing actionable steps to achieving the vision, even from such an early time, two and a half years ago. And at the end of that, I walked away and I said, I have to work with these people. If this is a team that can really change the world and I need to, I want to see how that's done. And then, of course, building car-free cities, that's, that's amazing, right? It's like, I went to college wanting to study nuclear engineering because I was like a big environmentalist and wanted to change the shape of energy in the world. Since then, I'm not confident that there's much room for nuclear energy in America since 
that's a different conversation for another time. But I think a lot of people are against nuclear for poor reasons. But I think that reducing your carbon impact by having denser cities without car reliance is actually like a huge driver of not just like gains from trade and typical agglomeration effects that you would expect, which is like a pretty well-known result that's been studied a lot in urban economics, but also it, it like is better for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, that's awesome that it came back to your central thesis of how do I, again, how do I use technology to help people, but also, right, how do I solve this problem? And, and, and this is one of these cases where it's, okay, how do you, like, software is a very particular thing that you can do and you can use it to help people, but it's like, how do you leverage technology, all the technology that we have available to us in order to build something this big, in order to potentially change urbanism? in a country or in a state or whatever. Um, those questions were what really appealed to me when I first decided to join Cul-de-Sac. Yeah, and it's interesting that you point out software, right? One of the people I talked to was Rahul Rana, who he literally wrote a book about deep tech. And it gets to this Peter Thiel idea of his heuristic is if you subtract out all the screens in a room, how do you know you're not in, in 1970? And so to some extent, cul-de-sac is answering that question. <laughs> That's true. Though I have some problems with that heuristic, but it's fine. <laughs> I, you join this team. They give you this absolutely mind-boggling idea, but they're very well prepared. And it seems like they know what they're, they're talking about. And so how do you think about, again, coming to this idea we've talked about, but how do you think about using your unique skill set to bring that vision into reality? Yeah, when I first joined, I was a child in terms of software engineering. So I didn't know very much and the founders were taking a big bet on me and I'm really appreciative for that. And I think that really what I was focused on was like, okay, my skill set is learning. Like I'm a quick learner and I don't need to be told twice, especially when it comes to technical stuff, though. I sometimes do need to be told twice about showing up to podcasts on time. Different skill sets. Ah. Are different. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was thinking like, how can I accelerate my learning as fast as possible to start to provide real outsized impact for the amount that I'm getting paid and for the amount of time that is being invested in me. Mm-hmm. So I immediately just started like jamming on tutorials and, I think one of, the, one of the things that I believe about learning software engineering is that if you can immerse yourself in software, then you're going to have a much easier time getting up to speed. Like the difference between somebody who spends like five hours a day devoted to learning compared to one hour a day devoted to learning is not 5x. It's like maybe 20 or 30 or 50 X. It's like a truly insane exponential rate of growth. And at some point you hit limits where like you can't push your brain that hard, but until you hit that limit, just keep pushing because in the early stages, the gains that you're getting are insane. What I would do is I would have like, I would be going through like Django tutorials, learning like high productivity web framework in Python. And then I go through a rails tutorial and learn a high productivity web framework in Ruby at the same time, I'd be doing React classes on Udemy 
and I'd be doing a little bit of React Native, though I'd push that off to later because it was slightly too much to be doing it once. And when I'd go to the bathroom, I'd have a free code camp on my phone, and I'd be like learning JavaScript syntax because I'd never done JavaScript before, actually. I was a Python developer and a C. I was actually mainly a C developer. C was my best language because I had done embedded systems, and I was an electrical engineer. But I learned Python, of course, quite quickly. And then, and so I was learning like, I was learning at multiple different levels. And I think that's really important. I think what happens to a lot of developers is they think I'm going to be coding in React, so I should learn React. Yeah. But it's like, if you can learn React and JavaScript, because obviously React is in JavaScript, right, but it's yeah. actually not quite the same because if you're learning JavaScript in the context of React, you aren't learning all of JavaScript. And so if you do both at the same time, you start to be able to parse out in your mind, oh, this abstraction that I'm using, this is a React abstraction. React has provided this to me as a helper for this web application. And this function right here, this is a JavaScript abstraction. I don't need React for this. I could do this in any JavaScript framework. And that's obviously, that's obvious to an experienced software engineer, but to somebody who's just learning, it's actually really difficult to parse out like which parts of this are React and which parts of this are just vanilla JavaScript, and what's the benefit of React? And so when you watch YouTube videos and read books and go through tutorials and do the free code camp on your phone, and you're just doing it all, and you really embed yourself, like in your free time, you're reading like coding books, and on the clock, you're reading coding books. I think that you learn, it's almost like uh, the difference between learning Spanish in the classroom or learning Spanish like in Spain. Whereas, yeah, in the immersion setting, you might start to feel overwhelmed, like this is too much. On the other hand, in the immersion setting, you're going to learn 10 or 20 times faster. Yeah, I want to get a little bit into this idea of, of learning how to code. So you talked about learning at different levels, right? And obviously people say learning React makes you a better JavaScript programmer. I haven't heard as many people say, but it's definitely correct. Learning JavaScript definitely makes you a better React programmer, just because it's probably so obvious, myself included. And I can name a bunch of other people. Definitely think about approaching the the hottest framework out there, right? React probably, in, in all fairness, won the framework wars, although Svelte is, well, Svelte's different. But, Svelte um, is not the number two to React, for what it's worth. There's no way, right? It's not, right? Vue has some interesting stuff going on. But just thinking about it, right? React state, Vue data, and I think Angular sort of... I agree that React won the... Died SP. along there. But anyway, yeah, I, I just think Svelte is cool. But anyway, I, I think that to, I guess, indict myself a little bit, it's definitely easy to plunge into, okay, this is the hottest framework. This is what will get me a job. This is what I should study. And I think what you're talking about was being more of a generalist and learning how software concepts could be applied across languages, which is what helped you do more damage. Right. It's like across the languages and across frameworks, you'll start... It's just because I know that I'm going to be speaking Spanish in the household the most doesn't mean I should only learn the names of like household objects or something like that. Mm. Even though that's like passable, that's a theoretically you could get by doing that. But like the context of the broader possibilities in software allow you to become a full stack engineer very quickly. And when you're full stack like that, you start to any time that a problem comes up, you start to think of two or three ways of solving the problem. And it's like, which of these two or three ways is best? Instead of like, how can I force the one hammer that I have to solve all of my problems? You build like a tool set that enables you to solve a lot more problems. And that's like a, 
utilitarian way to look at it. It's, oh, I learned multiple languages and I learned multiple frameworks because they're each a different tool and you use them for a different job. And that part's definitely true. But I also think there's like an, agglom like an agglomeration effect, so to speak, or like gains from trade, so to speak, which is weird because it's just learning. But it's like if you approach these software problems from many different angles at the same time while learning, you actually learn in each of them faster, in my opinion. At least that's my experience. And so you're at cul-de-sac while this period of rapid, just immersive learning is going on? Okay. Yeah. And I guess this is me just trying to get advice for myself. But were you thinking about when you were doing that, there's obviously a phrase familiar to a lot of people that try to learn how to code, which is called tutorial hell, which is where you're just constantly doing tutorials without building anything. So I'm interested in how you thought or, or whether you thought about little small time box projects or how did you not convince yourself, but how did you measurably see that you were getting better and, and uh, getting more knowledgeable about these sorts of things? So in the early days, it's pretty easy to know that you're getting better. First of all, I would recommend like one way to get out of tutorial hell that's not too, not a too hard way to get it out of tutorial hell. It's just, I don't know, like the project. But <laughs> so I think for cul-de-sac, that was somewhat easy. It's okay, we're, we need a web server. I'm going to build a web server. And then, and then you still do all the tutorials. You just also have your same project. And so if you have this one project that you keep coming back to and you keep like improving it with better and better abstractions, and I don't necessarily mean improving it by like rewriting all your code. We all, we don't want to get into refactor hell either. But um, if you keep improving it by like whenever you need to add a feature, just do it the best way that you can. I think that you can actually pretty easily compare your progress because you have this like reference point. Oh, I was working on this project last month and it took me like a week to build out this like full service layer, which included like a data model and API access. And I did it in two hours this time. So I'm just getting a lot better. I think that I would recommend sticking to one project for quite a while, I guess, mm -hmm. as the best way to measure progress over time. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Graham has some advice on, on his website too, which is just, if you want to learn how to code, just go to a startup and, and just try to absorb as much stuff as you can. And one of the interesting, less talked about effects of that is we can't really become what we can't see in some sense. So you were not only learning how to code, but you were also just learning how to be a software engineer. Sorry, by... could you say it again, please? What on earth? Sorry about that. I guess I'll edit that out later. But you were also, you were learning how to be a software engineer from people who obviously were very competent software engineers. Yeah, actually, it's a sort of unique story at Cul-de-Sac because the founders of the company aren't technical. So I was the only software engineer. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it gets to this idea of what cul-de-sac does goes way beyond the typical software company. In fact, it's like, it's in my opinion, comparative advantage, but you know, that maybe that's another, that's a longer conversation is, is quite nuanced. Uh-huh. They, when, when I saw it, I thought building car-free cities, that's nuts. And then I read that cul-de-sacs acquired a plot of land in Temple, Arizona. I'm like, okay, cool. And I don't want to say that I've been like following this over a long period of time. When I sat down to interview you, I got interested. And so if, I don't want to say if cul-de-sac works out, but if this project works out, right, 
what are what are the benefits that you're most looking forward to in the changes in the way that people live their lives? Because I think there's other sort of second and third order effects, right? If we talk about denser cities, that's more face-to-face interaction, right? So people develop better, healthier relationships with their neighbors. But there's all sorts of interesting considerations going on there. What do you do if a natural disaster strikes, right? How do you evacuate people? It's not that I'm necessarily asking you all those questions. What sort of, I don't know, what aspect of all that do you think about the most, maybe? Yeah, obviously, I don't speak on behalf of cul-de-sac or anything like that when I talk about what I'm most excited about for the project. But personally, in the days where I get to live in cul-de-sac one, which I'm really excited about, I think what I'm looking forward to most is like the intentionality of the space. Okay, like we've all come together to live in a place that's fundamentally different than most places in this country. And therefore, we have some sense of shared kinship. Like we are here because of some shared mission. And, and even though we can't all be friends, it's a thousand people, it's very large. We, I can at least be friends with my neighbors. And one of the design choices that I'm really excited about as well is that we have all these exterior staircases. There are no interior staircases. There are no long hallways. And so you just walk up the exterior staircase right to your door. You open your door and now you're in your apartment. And so like the moment you leave your apartment, you're in a courtyard, you're in this communal space, you're with your neighbors. Instead of the communal space in a typical apartment complex is like a hallway that's pretty anonymous and like pretty... Uh, dark. The shared space in this case is a beautiful courtyard that leads to a paseo. And I think personally, that is what attracts me to the idea of living at Mm cul-de-sac. And yeah, you're in this fascinating situation where you're building something that you're going to use, which I guess happens to a lot of people. But Everybody, if you're not going to use what you build, maybe somebody else should be building it. Yeah. And I mean that in the sense that it's not It's not like other people don't do that, but you are literally like living in what you build. And when you started at Colisac, so you've been at Colisac for two and a half uh, years now. And and so the size of the team was three people, four people when you joined? Four people. Four people. And, And now I'm sure it's much bigger than that. And what excites you the most? I'm just trying to ask a question that you can answer but what excites you the most about the direction of cul-de-sac's progress yeah honestly everything (laughs) like it's just the fact that it's gonna happen i think is maybe the most exciting right yeah people people come to you with this moonshot idea and okay yeah it's like the team growing is exciting and the engineering team growing is exciting and my skill set growing is exciting and it's all exciting. I think what's, yeah, what's most exciting is that one day I'll be able to live in it. Like it's actually going to happen. And that is, that's, I can't wait. Very exciting time. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for you. <laughs> yeah, dude. If you want to join, then join the waitlist. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, to take a small tangent, Arizona is just an amazing place. But Arizona, I'm a stan, honestly, huge stan for Arizona. Highly recommend. If you are sick of San Francisco, with the Tempe, it's a great place to be, too, for what it's worth. 
I don't want to. I feel like a lot of people have been hating on San Francisco lately. I don't want to shit on San Francisco, but um. right, yeah. Particularly on Twitter, it's like people are going to Austin and Miami, and and I honestly just don't see that happening. Uh, I okay, so I see Austin happening, um, but only a little bit. I think I totally agree with your take that I don't see this happening. Like these cities, I don't like. I've spent some time in Austin. Mm-hmm. So are you telling me that all the young tech people all of a sudden are just going to buy cars and buy houses in the suburbs and then drive 20 minutes to see their friends? Because mm-hmm. I don't buy that. Like, I don't think that's what the young, cool people are going to be doing. The young, cool people are still not going to have cars and they're still going to live in like dense metropolitan areas and they're still going to want to take an Uber to their friend's house, which is only like five minutes away. Any place that's been an attractor function for people who broadly want to change the world are excited about the potential of technology Uh, even just through gen z mafia we see so many young people flocking to sf all the time it's hard to imagine that something will shift so quickly Um, but yeah the just the thing about arizona i went to sedona arizona which is honestly mostly like super old people over there but it's it's just beautiful it's unbelievable touristy place or a place to settle down and retire or whatever and it's yeah stunning very beautiful. Amazing desert landscape yeah. in Sedona. Yeah. So the last question I always ask all of my podcast guests, which you've answered before, so I'm, maybe I'll try to find a different take on it for you, but it's what excites you the most about the future? Oh, yeah. It's a great question. Man, there's so much now. I'm stoked for the future. I think there's a long time during COVID where it's easy to get in your own head and to feel like this is never going to end. I'm trapped, but it's almost over. We are vaccinating people this week. Yep. And once it's over, okay. So in the short term, maybe I'll give like a short term, medium, long term answer here. In the Mm -hmm. short term, what I'm most excited about for the future is the massive parties I'm going to throw. I mean, like the roaring twenties are in my opinion, I'm manifesting that shit. So I'm going to throw some major parties. I've never been a party thrower, but being trapped in your house for over a year really really changes things. I have a co-living house in San Francisco and I'm about to make it like a major hub for everybody to party. And that's going to be great. In the medium term, I think I'm ridiculously excited about tech. Biotech seems to be shooting off. We have our first mRNA vaccine. We have CRISPR, which has been in the works for a little while. AlphaFold just solved a grand challenge for protein folding like biotech seems like it's getting its heyday and that is tremendously exciting for me remote work seems like it's heralding a new age of internet first like social structures and internet first agglomeration effects so if you thought about if you thought about the gains from trade and the agglomeration effects due to cities which are very well studied in urban economics from the past which is like the more people that you have in cities the more they can specialize and essentially the better off we all are because one plumber can service tens of thousands of people's houses instead of like one, each person needing to be their own plumber, which essentially is less efficient. Now it's like that, but for everything, it's almost like the whole world is becoming one city. And that is pretty remarkable to me. And then, man, we're getting like, I think automation is still, the ball's still rolling on automation. It's been rolling for a while, for the last 20 years. But we're still automating more and more things every day. And eventually, like, humans aren't going to have that much more work to do. 
and I can't wait for that day. Like I'm excited for the day when like humans can just make art and yeah. throw parties and, and fall in love. And I think that that ultimately like those relationships I think are what life is about and tech makes me really excited to enable people to commit even more to their relationships without having to spend all their time like doing backbreaking labor in the fields or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's tremendous space for advancements in, in research and manufacturing and energy. Oh, in space. Yeah. I totally forgot about space. Space is going crazy right now. Like Starship just got test flighted. The space manufacturing industries, we're finally seeing like the first wave of space manufacturing is maybe going to start up soon. We'll see how like Blue Origin works out. Yeah. It's hard to say. And oh, the other thing that I just read about was China's fusion reactor is like entering a new stage of testing. So they're looking to double the highest temperature that they've ever recorded. And their previous oh, highest wow. temperature was like 180 million degrees or something. So they're going to get up to 360 million degrees. Yeah. And they're and approaching the point where fusion would be net positive energy output. Yeah. As we talked about, nuclear is, I think there's remarkable hope for humans being able to live sustainably on Earth, which is so exciting. I also think, I don't know, I think it's easy to tune into the news and think, oh, things are negative. Like people are mad, people are angry, people are scared. But like, in my life, I'm seeing like increasingly people seem aware of how important relationships are to them. They seem like increasingly aware of how important it is to build communities. And as somebody who is passionate about building communities myself, I think that the 20s, the upcoming 20s, are going to be this amazing era of communities being like forming spontaneously all over the world. And I can't wait for that as well. Yeah. The internet gives us so much possibility in terms of curating our life, whether it's the people we want to be around, what we want to work on. It's really letting us take control and, and design our lives the way we want to. So it's so exciting to talk to you. Uh, the best conversations are the ones where I leave more energized than when I came in. So thanks so much for that. And yeah, I, I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yep, you too. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care and we'll see you next time.